0: So, Jesus, open your word to us. Help increase our faith. Help us to follow you more. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to say hello to those of you who are watching at home, those of you in the community center. Thank you all for joining us. I want to start with a question. How many of you love to wait? Like, just give you a big, long line, and you are happy. Can I just see a show of all those? Great. This sermon will apply to every person in the room and if you like to wait, then, you know, we need to pray for you or something like that. I hate to wait. I, I hate it. I, I don't like lines. I don't like being at a stoplight when it turns green and I'm behind an accelerator challenge per- per- person. You know, it's just like, and, and I have to be nice because it might be one of you. Or at the checkout line, you know, when, when the person in front of you waits until their groceries are completely bagged, and only then do they pull out their wallet and slowly count out the exact change. You know, you know how cops give speeding tickets? I think they should give dawdling tickets as well, right? Like, this, I'm sorry, 200 bucks for just being slow. I hate to wait, and maybe you feel the same way too. Well, we're doing a sermon series on thriving in exile. Whether that's something personal, like a job, health, or a relationship problem, or corporately as Christians in a post Christian culture. And in this, we've seen that in exile, God does good things. He strengthens us, He makes us pioneers. We become culture changers by living in a different way that people are intrigued by. As you just heard from Lynn Pelton, I am so glad to be part of a church that has people like Lynn who who are willing to go out and serve even when it's risky. Uh, And those of you in the community center, you're going to hear her testimony in just a minute. We've seen that all throughout this, God does good things with us in exile. But one thing that we need is that we need to learn to wait on God because some of those things don't happen quickly. So we need to learn to wait what are you waiting for maybe you're waiting for a job or if you're in high school maybe you're waiting for your college applications to come back or to get married or for a relationship to heal or for your finances to turn around maybe it's something in our culture this week rich right here rich those of you in the community center Rich is over here rich and I went to a conference and and it was a conference of leaders from 12 different cities around the United States where Jesus seems to be stirring revival Revival of folks coming to know Jesus, revival of marriages, revival of people coming out of poverty, all kinds of things. And Seattle was just added to that list of cities. And we here at Bell Press are a big part of that by all the ways that we are in the community making a difference. So I'm not the only one who believes that Jesus is stirring revival here on the east side and that we're headed toward this Newsweek cover I always show you where we are known as the new God's country because of a spiritual, social, and relational revival. But this is the kind of change that can take a generation to complete. So to thrive in exile, we need to learn to wait on God. But you know what? I hate that word wait. I just, it has all these negative connotations, all of these images. There's a Christmas carol called Once in Royal David City. It has like nine verses. So you kind of can't wait for it to be over by the end. And the last verse gives the worst image of heaven ever when it says that heaven is a place where quote we like starry children crowned all in white will wait around oh far out man the eternal DMV in the sky right that's what the word wait conjures up so I'm not gonna use the term wait I'm gonna use a different phrase we're called to participatory patience wow I th- th- thought that was clever well it's not up there yet participatory patience. And yes, that's a little bit of a euphemism, but also I think it gets at something important because if we wait on God, it is not passive. It's more like waiters on a table, people who wait tables in restaurants. Very active, not passive. This week I went to get my haircut, the three that are left anyway. Actually, I think I'm going to start naming them. There's so few of them. And the place was supposed to be open, but when I got there, all the staff was sitting outside because the manager had not yet shown up to open, the, open up the place. So I waited and I waited and wait. finally I just went and came back a different day, just left. Waiting on God is not like that, as though God were late to work. Because you see, God is always active, always doing something. So to wait on Him means to participate in what He's doing, even if it's not what we want Him to be doing in the moment and that's what we see in the passage we just read from Habakkuk. Now the background on this is that things are not good in Israel. People have a lot of money, that's true, but they're terrified of losing it and they're kind of tied to it. They're bored with life, sexual mores are pretty loose, any religion was okay except for the God of the Bible which was considered intellectually inferior. So it doesn't really relate much to us here on the east side but we're going to study it anyway, it's kind of a history lesson. Habakkuk feels like an exile in his own culture. In fact, the very first line of the book says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. It's an accusation. You ever feel like that? God's not listening. You're talking. He's not listening. But then God, in the next verse, says, Oh, don't worry, Habakkuk. Don't worry about it. Because you see, the Babylonians are going to come, and they're going to conquer you, and you're all going to be taken into captivity in exile for 70 years. And Habakkuk is like, Are you out of your cosmic mind? How on earth is that going to help? And then God goes on to say that the exile will strengthen Israel and eventually Babylon will fall and the Jews will go home. But in the meantime, they have to wait. But not passively. They are called to participatory patience. And this text gives us some clues of of what that looks like. In fact, I'm going to list seven things. That's right, seven. You're going to have to wait a long time for this sermon to end. (laughs) That's all right. Some of you don't have power at home. You might as well stay. (laughs) Actually, some of these points are going to be very short. You'll still get out on time. But just listen. There's going to be seven. You pick the one that seems to apply to you best today. First, participatory patience means this. We have to give up our assumed omniscience. And here's what I mean. When we're in some kind of exile experience, we often are just sure that if X, Y, or Z doesn't happen, or if X, Y, Z does happen, then we're just doomed and it's going to be awful. Really? Are you omniscient? Do you know everything? Do you really know what needs to happen for you to find joy and fulfillment, or might God know better? That's a rhetorical question in case you were tempted to answer it. I mean, man, we don't know everything. We, we humans, we've sent probes past our solar system. We have, we have figured out our own genome, but no one has yet figured out how to merge effectively onto 405. We do not know everything. God says to Habakkuk, see, the enemy is puffed up. He's referring to the Babylonians who think that they know everything. And God says that leads to all kinds of disaster. Participatory patience patience means that we trust that God knows what he's doing. Even when we're waiting for something very difficult, very painful, are we sure that God can't bring something good even out of something so difficult? Even if we face death, we're headed toward heaven. My first ministry job was as an intern in a college ministry working for a, a pastor whose philosophy of ministry I did not agree with. And the whole year felt like exile to me, but probably more so for him because I was kind of a jerk about the whole thing. And I thought it was a lost year until 12 years later when I was a college pastor doing ministry the way I thought it should be done, and it didn't work. And then one night as I was praying, I thought, wait, wait, I have other tools in my toolbox. And I remembered all those things that my old boss did that I thought was wrong, and I started doing them in my college ministry. And what do you know? They worked it was very humiliating actually <laughs> my wife actually insisted that I call him she just kept bugging me so finally I called him I hadn't talked to him in 12 years and I said hello Denny. this is Scott Dudley and I just have two things I want to say to you I'm sorry and you were right I'm just gonna repeat that I'm sorry and you were right and he started to laugh and said yeah someone told me you were doing college ministry I thought it was a year of exile, a wasted year. Instead, I was getting tools that I would need 12 years later. The author Ben Patterson talks about having to wait five years for his girlfriend to marry him. When she finally did, it was so much better because they'd grown so much. And he says, I thank God for all the times I've prayed for silver, and God said no and made me wait for gold so he could give me gold instead. Here's the thing. The job of God has been filled. You do not need to apply. You're not qualified anyway. Second point, participatory patience means to vote for your own personal growth. As God makes clear to Habakkuk, the exile in Babylon is going to strengthen the Israelites, purge them of their sin of idolatry. It's going to be good for their growth. But how many of us, how many of you, when something bad happens, how many of you say, oh, good, this is a chance for me to become the kind of person I've always wanted to be? And we just don't do that. But more important than what we wait for is who we become as we wait. More important than what we wait for is who we become as we wait. The author Eugene Peterson says, Waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged by waiting. (laughs) And for those of you who are young, man, this may be the most important point in this sermon. Because you face a ton of pressure to get into the right college, get the right job, all of that. But more important than the things that you can put on your resume is who you become as a person. And this is so hard to do because in our hurry-up culture, we want it right now, don't we? It's like a story I heard of an economist who read the verse in the Bible that says that a thousand years are like one day to God. And so he said, Lord, is it true that a thousand years are like one day to you? And, And God said, yeah, And then the economist said, well then, a million dollars must be like one penny to you. And God said, yeah. And the economist said, well, well, then will you give me one of those pennies? And God said, sure, wait here a minute. (laughs) Takes a minute to get that one. Often we want God's resources, but not his timing. We want the penny, but not the minute. But it takes time, a whole lot of precious time, to become like Jesus. Billy Graham's wife died several years ago and for her tombstone she wanted something that she had seen on road signs so her tombstone says end of construction thank you for your patience (laughs) which brings me to point three participatory patience means we have to gain perspective Habakkuk says I will station myself on the ramparts I will look to see what he will say to me A rampart is a defensive wall or a tower and what happens when you stand and watch on top of a tower. You get better perspective. And maybe that army that on the ground seemed to be so big from the tower maybe doesn't look as formidable because you have perspective. So participatory patience means we get God's perspective. And the way we do that is we keep the long-term goal in mind. So for instance, when I'm frustrated with with one of my kids, not the one over here, of course, this one never, but other children, right? (laughs) I want to despair her. If I think of the long-term goal of raising kids that love Jesus and kind of like to be around their parents, right, that makes it easier for me to respond not in frustration but in a loving way because I'm focused on the long-term goal rather than my immediate frustration. And by long-term goal, I mean goals that happen even after we die. You know, my grandmother worked hard to get all six of her kids to college, something that had never been done in my family before. But because of her, I was not raised in the kind of poverty that my dad was raised in. And we used to think generationally like that, that I'll work hard so that my kids can have a better future, even if I don't see that better future. But I think we're losing that discipline. Now it's hard to extend the horizons of my wants even to my own kids because in our culture, it's kind of all about me. We need to cultivate the discipline of planting trees, the shade of which we will never sit under. Because God works in our individual lives, but he also works generationally. As he was with the Israelites, using the exile to purge them of their sin and strengthen them. If it takes a generation for revival to come, will you still participate with God in bringing it, even if you don't get to see all of it happen in your lifetime? I will, because I know that in doing that, we get the joy of making a difference, and we will be remembered. My grandmother is the greatest hero of my life because of her legacy. Even my kids know her and revere her, even though they never met her. Long-term perspective. Fourth, participatory patience means we don't leave our post. Habakkuk uses the metaphor of watchmen on a tower. Watchmen can't leave their post. They have to hang in there all night long. And often when God doesn't seem to be working, we stop praying, stop stop being in Christian community, stop serving others, stop going to worship because it doesn't seem to help. But if we give up, then we're going to miss what God has for us. Sort of like me waiting for that barbershop to open. What do you want to make a bet? That manager showed up like two minutes after I left. What do you want to make a bet? John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, had a friend who said to him, I'm sick of praying. I'm getting nothing out of praying, so I'm going to stop. And Newton said, well, I can tell you for sure you're going to get nothing out of not praying. We don't leave our post. We keep at it. Fifth point participatory patience is another word for defiance so often we feel like i can't really do anything i can't have joy my life doesn't really start until this or that thing happens or unless this or this other thing happens and we just sort of wait around for life to begin But participatory patience is saying no to that. I I can do many of the things I want to. I can become the kind of person I want to become in spite of it, even if those things that I think need to happen aren't happening. It's saying to our circumstances, I defy you, and I will keep praying, keep hoping, keep becoming like Jesus, and you can't stop me. Okay? Point six. See, we're cruising now. See, I told you they were going to go fast. Point six. Participatory patience means waiting on the Lord not the Lord's things. Because so often when we say, oh, I'm waiting on the Lord, what we really mean is I'm waiting for God to give me what I want. Right? But that leads to fear and anxiety. The root of all worry, the root of every single worry you have, is a violation of the first commandment. See, if we're worried about money, it's because we look to it, not God, as our security. First commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. If we're worried about our jobs, it's because we look to our jobs, not God, as the source of fulfillment and provision. The source of every worry is that something has become more important to us than God. But sometimes, not always, but sometimes, I experience Jesus as I pray, I experience Jesus' presence, and that seems so big, it makes my worries diminish and seem small. We wait on Jesus himself, not for what he can give us. So what does that look like? How do we do that? We do that through honest prayer. And honest prayer has three steps. Here's where I am, God. Here's who you are. This won't last. So for instance, look at how King David prays in the Psalms. Very raw, very honest, very real, right? He's always saying things like, kill all the people who don't like me, right? He's just very passionate. The prophets were always yelling at God, Jeremiah at one point says to God, you have raped me. It's very strong language. You're like, whoa, can you say that to God? Well, yeah, you can. He can handle it. See, so often we nice it up and kind of get our prayer voice on. You know, but that prayer is primal. Don't tell me you don't know how to pray. You know how to yell? You know how to pray. Right? Look at how, look at, look at how you talk to your friends. It's the same way, you know, You're with your friends. I hate my job. I hate my boss. I hate my life. I'm so frustrated. Anyway, how was your weekend? Honest prayer starts with, this is where I am. But then it moves to, but this is who you are. After ranting at God for three chapters, Jeremiah finally says, but this I remember and this I call to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This is where I am. This is who you are, which means this won't last. And that brings me to my final point, and that is participatory patience means to look for what God's doing in your life all the time. Psalm 130 uses the same image as Habakkuk when it says, I will wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. So how do watchmen wait for the morning? Are they like, I wonder if the morning is ever going to come? If you you asked a watchman, is the morning going to come? What would they say? You know what they'd say? They'd say, the sun will come out tomorrow. (laughs) Bet Everybody's just thinking about tomorrow, right? Yes, it's going to come. Participatory patience means we know God is working. We know that God is always active. So we're always on our toes, curious, excited, always asking, what are you going to do now, God? What are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? Like a dog following their owner. Right, dog, not a cat, a dog, right? What are you going to do now, God? What are you going to do now? And even when we're waiting for something really painful, and sometimes we have to wait through some very painful situations, and we wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever, but even in those awful times, when we're down to nothing, God is always up to something. <clears throat> There's a couple in our church, many of you know, John and Michaela Butler, whose newborn baby Noah died after only 13 days because of a rare lung condition. To make it even worse, seven months later they tried to adopt a baby, but that baby also died after only a few days. It was unbelievably unf- Exile at its absolute worst. And yet somehow, John and Michaela managed to wait on God and participate with him in bringing some kind of good out of something just so dreadful. They started a scholarship in Noah's name at Whitworth University, a wonderful university in Spokane. They also sponsored something called 13 Days of Rainbows. So their son was named Noah, and in the Bible, Noah got a rainbow after the flood. And throughout their ordeal, John and Michaela kept seeing rainbows that reminded them of God's presence. So 13 Days of Rainbows encouraged people to do at least one kind act every day for 13 days. Michaela also wrote a blog. And after their adopted baby died, this is what she wrote. She said, what does grief look like? On a typical day, grief looks like a hot mess. My Myers-Briggs test says that one of the ways my personality type deals with stress is to marathon watch their favorite TV show. That's what grief looks like. I've also found a life-giving force from our amazing community. A dear friend came over on Sunday to be with me. We painted our nails. Correction, she painted my nails. I didn't do anything. Someone also filled our house with food when we got back from the hospital. Maybe the single most helpful act of love there is. Three of our pastors have contacted us repeatedly with their words of encouragement, support, and anger. Hearing words like, I am yelling at God for you from your senior pastor is strangely one of the most comforting things. We don't need cliche, poem-like words. We need others joining us in our grief. I need alone time, yes, but I need others even more. I don't know when I'll go back to work or if I'll go back to work. I don't even know what's for dinner tomorrow, but I don't have to, thank goodness, because it's just going to show up on our doorstep. What a gift. My mind and my heart have seen things no human should have to and then two times over, but they are stronger than I thought possible. And even in this awful time, I have to believe that God is working this situation for good. Well, this summer John and Michaela had a baby named Miles. And we got to baptize Miles a few weeks ago in our six o'clock service. And Miles is as strong as an ox. But before John and Michaela could take Miles home from the hospital, he had to pass some kind of car seat test where they monitored his oxygen while he sat in a car seat for 90 minutes. Had to do that before they could take him home from the hospital. Well, the test took place in the neonatal intensive care unit. And as they were walking there, all Michaela could think was, this the last time we were here, was when, our, when we lost Noah, and our world began to crumble. Not only were in they in the NICU, but even worse, they were even taken to the exact same room that Noah was in. And then they had to hook Miles up to machines, just like Noah had been hooked up to machines. And Michaela said they were angry and anxious, just reliving the whole awful nightmare. But Miles passed the test, and then John and Michaela both had one of those not-from-us-so-must-be-God thoughts and Michaela said with our healthy son sleeping peacefully in his car seat God right here and right now was making something new baby miles is in and of himself something new obviously but it was more than that God was taking an evil situation and working good into it before our very eyes what happened with Noah can never be erased from existence that NICU room where we experienced hell is still there but with miles added in there was hope and joy that wasn't there before And that hope and joy was sitting right alongside the fear and pain. Very same room, two polar opposite experiences inhabiting the same place. That's my life. Our wildly creative God can make miraculously beautiful things out of absolute garbage. Miles is a testimony to that. We all are. I don't know how you do that better. I don't know how you go through something like that better. That is what I'm talking about. They did all seven of these steps. They gave up trying to know everything they couldn't possibly. They allowed God to grow their hearts and their minds, prayed for God's perspective. They kept at it. They defied the enemy's plans by participating with God and bringing good out of bad. They looked for what God was doing in every moment and waited on Jesus. Not what he could give them, but they sought the presence of our making new of all things God who is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. And when we wait like that... It doesn't make all the pain go away, but we know that we're not alone and that God is on the move and that somehow we are a part of it. So what are you waiting for? And which one of these seven steps do you need to lean into today so that your waiting isn't passive, but it becomes participatory as you anticipate what our creative making new of all things God is going to do next? Habakkuk puts it best at the very end of his book, This is what he writes. He says, Yet I will wait patiently. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And that word yet, he uses it twice. That word yet is so important. That's what participatory patience is all about. Another word for it might be faith. Faith. Earlier Habakkuk says the righteous shall live by faith. Another word for faith is yet. Though I can't see it now, though I don't know where God is, though I may be in exile, yet I will hope, yet I will be joyful, yet I will participate with what God is doing, yet I will celebrate because the last word does not belong to me, my culture, my problems, or my despair, yet I will give praise because the last word, the last word belongs to Jesus and he is Lord. So, Jesus, thank you so much that we do not wait alone, but we wait with you, and we wait on you, and you are always with us, and you are always on the move. So whatever we are waiting for, Lord, help us to see the ways that you are active and help us to participate with you in those ways. And we will point to you as the author of all of our joy and give you all the glory. Let's pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.